Uh, we are continuing in our series in the book of Philippians, this small little letter that Paul wrote to the church that he planted in this town called Philippi, which is in Greece. And we are going to start and focus in on chapter 3, verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bible in front of you, page 981. And we're going to read a few verses prior to getting to that. But as you find that, I'm always reminded, we don't say it all the time, but um, you come from a different background perhaps and you don't say the Apostles' Creed. Maybe you're not used to that. And you come across that line that says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And you think, I don't think I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. So you mumble it or something. Um, and you wonder if I've come to a Catholic church because uh, we don't look like one. Um, but if you don't know, the big C Catholic is the Catholic church. The little C, which is what we repeat, is the word in the Apostles' Creed, and that word means worldwide. So when you say that, you're saying, I believe there is a worldwide church. Uh, so you don't have to mumble it anymore. You can say it with confidence. Um, Philippians. Uh, we're in this book, and what I want us to notice that beginning back in chapter 1, verse 27, which I want to read to you, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the beginning of a longer discussion, and Paul is trying to say there's a way in which you're supposed to live your life. There's a kind of a Christian character, and what I'm going to say is he's building an archway of Christian character. This is the archway that should overshadow your life. This is the archway that should frame your character, your habits. And he's going to spend uh, a lot of time just picking off different habits like stones in an archway. He's going to say, okay, let's build this archway and let's see what we're supposed to do or maybe what you're not supposed to do or be like. And he does that all the way up into chapter 3, verse 1. So let's look at this in, uh, let me just, let's look together beginning in chapter 1, verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may take heart that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. So one characteristic of the Christian is they're interlocked with other Christians. They're standing in unity together. And verse 28, don't be afraid. One of the reasons you can fight fear is when you're together with other people and saying, that's right, we believe this. We're together with Christ. So these are these little blocks, unity and courage. Chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Huge block in this Christian archway. He's putting in, and we've talked about this, he's putting in this block of humility. And he defines what humility is, just not considering yourself above other people. And then he gives us an example of that in Christ, chapter 2, verse 7. Who made himself nothing, or he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. So your life is meant to be a, a hose. It gets fed, and it flows through you out. You empty yourself out. What, what your talents, your time, your money, whatever it is, you've been given these things. You're not meant to hold on to them or stack them up in your closet. You're meant to have them flow through you because you're serving Christ. You're serving other people. That's another characteristic trait. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling 
or questioning or grumbling or anger, some of it says. Don't, don't wrap yourself in some warm, comfortable blanket of grudges and anger. That's not part of the Christian character. And then in chapter 2, verse 19, he sort of pauses, and instead of giving a, an, another couple of character traits or going down the list, he says, okay, in case you're kind of lost on the list, I'm going to send a person to you. In fact, I'm going to send two men to you, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And those two men, if you just look at them and you watch their character trait, they live underneath this archway. So if you just follow after them, you'll be following after a good Christ-like model. And then we come to chapter 3, verse 1. And Paul, I would say, wants to fit in one more block. And I'm going to call that the keystone. The keystone, in case you don't know, is that triangular stone at the top of an archway. It's the stone that holds everything together. It's the stone that allows this structure to hold more weight, to be stronger. And he's saying this keystone, this stone actually influences all the other character traits. So if you're serving, you want to serve influenced by this one character trait. If, if If you're pouring yourself out, you want to pour yourself out with this character trait. This is the one thing that that locks everything together. And this one characteristic, he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice. Have joy. Let joy be the keystone. Allow that to influence everything else you do. This keystone characteristic for Paul is joy. And I want to talk about that this morning in a few ways. But before we do, let's pray together. Lord, we come uh, from all kinds of different places, and we come needing help in really finding, experiencing, holding on to joy. And so I pray that you would take these few words from the Apostle Paul and help us, help us to hold on to real joy, and may it influence then all other parts of our character. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so two things, three things I'm going to try to do with this passage. Number one, I want to give a definition of joy. Because you hear the word joy, you kind of sort of think you know what it means. And I just want to say from the Christian perspective, from Paul's perspective, when he talks about joy, he means this. So a definition. Secondly, I want to talk about how Paul fights for joy. That's the main purpose of us being here together. How does Paul fight for joy? Once we understand it, how does he actually fight for it? Why does he need to fight for it? And then next week, I'm going to title my sermon, Kill Joy, because he says there's something that can kill that joy. I want you to rejoice, but then he's going to give you a warning. You can see it just in chapter 3, verse 2. Look out. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. See, he's, he's saying, hey, here's joy. It's the keystone. But look out because somebody wants to kill your joy. Somebody wants to steal your joy. And that is the text for next week. So we're going to just do two things. Give a definition of joy and then talk about Paul's fight for joy. First of all, let me give you a definition. The positive emotion of the soul. So joy is a positive emotion. It is something you experience and you consider it positive. And it's in your soul and it's produced by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, we're going to unpack these phrases here, but I just want to put it out there. Of the positive emotion of your soul that is produced by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit directs your attention to the beauties found in Christ. So I'm having a positive emotional experience. It's of my soul, and it happens as the Holy Spirit grabs my attention and says, look at this, Paul. Look at the beauty found in Christ. Look at the beauty of the gospel. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. It's a positive emotion. Now, joy sometimes is described as happiness, but usually happiness is connected to happenings. So good things are happening in my life, and I feel joyful, and that can be a little part of it, but joy is much deeper than just your circumstances, as we'll see. Joy can be described as comfort or rest or assurance. The, the prayer that Claude used, or the passage that Claude used, Christ says, come to me, all you are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, rest for your weary soul. Something deeper down than just circumstances. And it's of the soul. It's hard to describe sometimes what your soul is. But your soul is your inner self. It's it's what God breathes his life into you. He makes you by the, the, the dust of the earth. But when he breathes his life into you, he's breathing in his image. He's breathing into you a soul. Your soul lives on after your body dies. I was reading in my uh, year through the Bible. Some of you are on the same plan. Genesis chapter 35 where Rebecca dies. Remember Isaac and Rebecca Isaac's wife, Rebecca, dies in childbirth. So she's giving birth to this son, but she's dying. And it says in Genesis 35, don't be afraid for you have another son. And this was said as her soul was departing. See, your body dies, but your soul departs. Your soul lives on after you. Your soul is what God has breathed into you that lasts forever. So you're, when, when we talk about this emotion, it's not a surface emotion, it's a soul emotion. And it's something that's not, you can't just manufacture it. You can't go buy it off a shelf. It's, it's a product of the Holy Spirit. We know that from Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is, what are, what are they? Love, joy, joy. It's part of the Holy Spirit being occupying your being, that, that he brings joy. And how does he do that? He, he directs your attention to the gospel. He directs your attention to Jesus. You have hope in Jesus. You see Jesus at work, and, and those kinds of things are bringing you joy. So when Paul says in chapter 3, 1, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, I think he means for you and I to have two streams of joy coming into our soul. And this is what he means. First of all, he means that the Lord is the object of your joy. I I hope you know what I'm talking about when I say this. That the Lord just all by himself is delightful. Apart from anything he's doing in your life or anything he's doing in the world, just his existence, just his being, just his glory just his weight, just his value, just his holiness, just his character, just his power. I mean, you can just keep going on, just thinking about these things. Th- those things fill up your soul with joy. David, David, the, the king, he gets it. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. 
just sit and stare at the Lord. If you haven't done that in a long time, do it today. Until just his being fills up your soul. I love the Christmas hymn, O Holy Night. You might remember some of these words. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. You you feel this energy. The the stars are coming out. The angels are singing. God's going to come in the flesh in the world. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. We live in a world where we pine after, we long after, we try to mine up sin and error, thinking that's going to be good for our soul. Till he appears, and then the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. Remember how it goes? A weary world rejoices. When you see Jesus, when you see God come in the flesh, when you see Christ die on the cross, when you see the Holy Spirit come in and invade your life, all those things just by themselves, they're delightful. That's a, one stream of joy. And then there's another stream of joy, Paul says, is that the, the Lord is the source of joy. He's not just the object of your joy. He's the source of your joy. In other words, you've seen him at work. You've seen him doing things. You've seen him work in your life. You've seen him work in situations. And you just look at that situation, and that brings you joy. I was at um, Trinity, the church that we were given a couple of months ago. And I have a pastor's group, and we meet once a month. And I said, guys, let's just meet over there. There's three, three white pastors, three black pastors. And we just talk about being pastors. We talk about our lives. We talk about race and the culture, and we meet every, once, every month, and we talk about these things. And, and one of my favorite friends in that group is Rob Campbell, and he got there a little bit early, and we're walking around, and I said, Rob, I can't believe it. God just gave this you know, to Christ Community Church. Well, he just gave it to us, and he, he, I bet he said this 10 times, look what God has done, and only how Rob can say it. Look what God has done. See, he was getting joy by seeing God giving good gifts. And that's part of what should fill up your soul. If you're struggling with joy, you should look, be able to look around and see what God is doing and say, look what he's done. And that brings joy. That's the joy that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. I just want to stop here and just make one comment. I think this is one of the main reasons it's helpful to be in church on Sunday mornings. Now, I realize there's folks on Facebook Live now, and you can't make it because of COVID. There are other reasons. But it's, it's hard to maintain joy in this life, in case you don't know it yet. And you can get discouraged, and circumstances can suck joy out of your life. And, and these two streams come in on Sunday morning. You get to, to get to hear the band come up here and just play. And just for a few minutes, you get to sing and remember, that's right. I'm, I'm delighting myself in the Lord. And there's something about doing it corporately together and saying, we're all singing this and saying this together. And then you get to connect with people. And you get to hear how the Lord is working in their life. Or maybe you get to help them in some way. And you see how God is operating. And that brings you joy. So that's a critical part of your spiritual health and a critical part in your fight for joy. So just one more time. Joy, it's this, this positive emotion of the soul. It's produced by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit directs your attention 
to the beauty found in Christ. That's what Paul means. Second thing I want to mention here is Paul's fight for joy. Now, now why do I say that? Why is Paul having a fight for joy? Well, he's in Rome, and he's not in an Airbnb. He's in a prison cell. And a prison cell is no fun, fun place to be in Rome. They don't supply anything to you. You have to get it from the outside, which is why Philippi has sent somebody to Paul. Anything that he wants, any kind of bedding, any kind of food, it's all got to come from the outside. So this is not an easy place to be, and it would have been easy for Paul to allow his circumstances just to consume him. And instead, he has to not allow his joy to be drained away. He has to fight for joy. A great example is this little story about the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther. Remember Martin Luther? He's the one in 1521 who stands up and basically say, I'm going to stand on the word of God, and I'm not going to stand for the words from the Pope. And it was a huge moment. It's, it's influenced all of Western civilization from that moment on. And you remember he stands there in front of this big council, and he says, here I stand. I can do no other. I mean, it's such a great moment in church history. Well, Luther's friends, when Luther left that meeting, thought the Catholic Church would come after him and kill him. And so Luther's friends, Luther, Luther's friends kidnap Luther. He's on his way home, and they jump him, put a hood over his head or whatever, and they actually take him to a castle, and they lock him in this castle and say, you can't, you can't leave because we don't want you to die. And after several weeks, Luther then writes his friends, and he says this, I sit here at ease, hardened and unfeeling, praying little, grieving little for the church of God, burning in the fierce fires of my untamed flesh. Think about this. This is the person who's going to really redirect Western civilization. He's, he's the one who's standing firm on the word of God, and this is what he's fighting, these untamed passions of the flesh. I should be a fire for the spirit. In reality, I'm a fire in the flesh with lust, laziness, idleness, sleepiness. For the last eight days, I've not written anything, prayed, studied. I've really been self-indulgent. I can't stand it any longer. Pray for me, I beg you. For in my, seclu- in my seclusion, I've become submerged in my sin. In my seclusion... I got isolated away, and that isolation was like a prison. And now I'm, dr- I'm drowning in my own sin. And I wonder if there's anybody here this morning who's drowning. COVID has been a kind of a prison. It's isolated you from normal routines. It's isolated you from the church. It's isolated you from your friends. It's isolated you from lots of different ways. And what's really happened in that isolation, you've just become a flame for the passions of the flesh. And you're drowning. My, my hope, my prayer for you is that you would do what Luther did. You would ask somebody, you would beg somebody to pray for you. That's one way out. I'll be up here. Claude will be up here after the service. If you're in that place where you're losing your fight for joy, you're drowning, 
Don't, don't walk out with somebody without somebody praying for you. So Paul, he's like Luther. He's now in prison. He's got to fight for joy himself. And we're going to see this thread of rejoicing or joy just sort of being sown all the way through the Bible, all through the, this letter. And I want to go back and pick up three of them, although there's many more. And what you should do today or sometime this week is just reread the letter in whole and just circle every time it says joy or gladness or rejoice, and you'll see the thread all the way through from chapter 1 to chapter 4. Chapter 1, turn with me, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. This is Paul's fight for joy. This is how I see Paul fighting for joy, and it can help us. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. So he's, he's sitting in this present cell, and he's saying, okay, i got to fight for joy. How am I going to do that? I'm going to remember the church at Philippi. I'm going to remember when I went there. I'm going to remember how they received the gospel. And then what does he say? Because I'm, I'm making this prayer with joy, verse 5, because... How is he getting joy? Because of your partnership in the gospel. I'm just remembering that I came there and people really received Christ. And it was a great sacrifice to me because I went to prison. I was beaten there. But the consequence of that was people actually came to faith. And then Epaphroditus comes to him in a prison cell and says, Paul, you won't believe it. These people are still your partners in the gospel. They're, they're still, still trusting Jesus. And Paul decides, I'm going to look at that and I'm going to take joy. This investment that I've made is bearing fruit. Now, just by God's providence, I get a phone call this past week from a 15-year-old girl. Now, she's not 15 anymore. She's 47, I think. But in my mind, she's 15. Because I met her at Spring Valley High School in Columbia, South Carolina. And I was there for two years, and I was trying to get Young Life off the ground. I never got it off the ground. Just stayed on the ground the whole time. And I, just, I went out and tried to get these kids to come to a Young Life club. I couldn't get five people to come. But one of the five people that came was Kelly. And I had met her in the high school cafeteria or a ball game or something. I introduced her to Nancy. They become friends. And Kelly and some of her friends go to a Young Life camp with us one summer. And she gives her life to Christ. And she maintains this relationship really with Nancy all this time. And she calls me this week now as a 47-year-old woman taking her teenage daughter to a camp. And I just want you to listen to a few seconds of this conversation. I'm thinking about both of you because I dropped off Ella, my oldest, to a youth group camp that she's going to be gone four days up to the mountains in North Carolina. And um, it just brought back so many memories of the weekends or the week that my life changed as a teenager. And um, I'm just thankful that you and Nancy cared enough about me to speak the truth to me that I needed to hear. That's like a million dollars to me. I mean, I, you know, I thought I was making some great sacrifice by walking on the high school campus of Spring Valley. It's not like being in prison. And, you know, you make this investment, you don't think anything's really happening with it. And then you get to take joy that, hey, this person, we're, partner, we're still partners in the gospel. And when I get down, I'm going to listen to this. 
And my hope is that as you watch the Apostle Paul make those kinds of investments, and now when he's in prison, he's got to fight for joy by remembering what he's actually invested in. You're investing in those things right now. So that when you have to fight for joy, you'll have a Kelly, you'll have another person who say, I just remember when you poured into my life, when you sacrificed for me, when you emptied yourself for me, oh, it'll bring such incredible joy as it did for the Apostle Paul. So that's one way he fights for joy. Chapter 1, verse 12. This is a second way he fights for joy. So, so crucial. And I love this little piece of biography about Paul. And let's read it together, beginning in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So Paul's saying, hey, I thought I got sidelined. By not being able to be in Rome, I'm in a prison cell. But it turns out he's not, uh, he's not sidelined. He's actually on assignment. And what's the assignment? It's become known throughout the whole world and the imperial guard and all the rest that I'm in prison for Christ. So people are hearing about Jesus. This is my assignment. I can't believe it. Then he goes on to say, most of the other brothers... They've become confident. They've become emboldened because of my imprisonment. They, somehow my imprisonment has actually encouraged people to sort of step up in ways that they wouldn't have. Now, verse 15, there are some people out there who are preaching Christ out of envy or rivalry. They don't have a heart of goodwill. They don't do it out of love. Instead, they, they, they uh, do it out of Rivalry or selfish ambition, sometimes it's, it's said. It, they don't, they're not doing it sincerely, verse 17. But here's what they're trying to do. They're, they're trying to afflict pain on me. Paul understands that some of these people are taking over the pulpit, and Paul's going to hear about it, and their hope is that they'll say that, that Paul had pain. See, Paul, I'm, I'm, I'm getting your crowd now. People are listening to me, not you. There's something weird and warped about this. And Paul sees it. He sees they do it this way. And it's, it's weird. And I hope for you, probably wouldn't come out this way in the way of preaching, but it might come out in some way of posting. If you ever try to post something that you hope somebody else sees in the hope that that would cause them pain, then you know you're warped. And that's how Paul's feeling. He, he understands their, their desire. But what is his response? This is so critical. How is he choosing to remember these painful things? Verse 18, whatever. I love it. So contemporary. Who knew Paul was contemporary? Whatever. I mean, whatever. I don't care. Why? Because all I care about is if Christ is proclaimed. Do you see what he chooses to remember? He chooses to remember that Christ, the cause of Christ is going forward. Now, what would Paul Phillips been thinking about at this moment? If I was in prison, if people were posting things to make me feel pain, it would have been very easy for Paul Phillips to just live in that pain. And say, look at, oh, look how hard it's been for me. Can you believe they said that? That's always a very easy default for everybody in pain. Is you get stuck in that vortex and it just sucks your soul down. And Paul is trying to help us see, say it. 
I see it. I can say it. Acknowledge that it really exists. Don't try to hide it. But don't let it, don't let it become your whole life. Does that make sense? Don't get stuck there. And you have to fight for joy by saying, I may be stuck in prison, but Christ isn't stuck. And I'm going to take joy in that instead of being stuck in my situation. That's how you fight for joy. That's something that's so important, especially when you're in a difficult, difficult situation. So Paul, he's, he's fighting for joy. He can fight for joy because I said this a couple of weeks ago. The Apostle Paul never thinks of, of himself as the show, but the platform. He's just a platform. The show's going to go on, and he's excited about the show. He's not excited about the platform. Chapter 2, verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice. See, Paul understands he might die. And I'm staring at my death as a, a drink offering. I can see that I might be poured out And when I see that, I'm glad. And I rejoice. And verse 18, you should rejoice as well. Well, how can Paul say that? Paul says that because their faith is more important than his life. See, he's got a priority system in his life. And these people's faith is of incredible, immeasurably more value value than his life. Because they're going to live in eternity forever. So if I give up my life for this person's faith, that's okay. I mean, I'm not, I'm not signing up for it, but if that's the way God has it in his economy, that's fine because your faith is more valuable than, than my life. And Philippians, you should rejoice because your faith is more valuable than the Apostle Paul's life. Do you see what he's saying? He's trying to help them understand life isn't the most valuable thing. Faith is. And I wonder if that's the way you think. Is everything about your life about your life? Or is there something much deeper, much more valuable than your living? It's your faith. Remember this passage? Jesus, he's in the boat. Remember this? Big storm comes. He's asleep. The apostles are trying to get back to the shore, and finally they can't get back to the shore. They think they're going to drown. They wake up Jesus. Jesus, don't you care about us? What does he say? Where's your faith? You know what he's saying? No, I don't care that much about your life. (laughs) That's the scary part about his statement. I care a lot about your faith because everyone's going to go down at some point. And when you go down, whether it's right now or later at death, we're going to need your faith. So where's your faith? You see, the Apostle Paul is trying to, he's fighting for joy by saying, my life is less valuable than someone else's faith. And I've made that investment. And so I'm going to take joy in that. And I want you to take joy in it, people in Philippi, because your life might be called on at some point. And I want you to know faith is more valuable than life. Now, I could go on. There's a lot of other places that you're going to find as you read. Feel pressure here from the pastor. Feel pressure. As you read your four chapters and just circle joy or gladness or rejoice, 
But I want to stop here because I had to wrestle with this passage and specifically this idea of fighting for faith a little bit differently this week than I would have probably any other time. And that's because I actually have a pastor who is a friend who is in prison. And so it made me stop and think, okay, I've got a friend named Nathan who's a pastor in India and we've talked about him. He's actually in prison right now. And what if I were to go and talk to him and try to encourage him? What would I say? And I got to think, would I really say these things? Is this what I'd want to say? And the answer is, is yes, this is what I'd want to say. This is what I'd want him to hear. And now here's a picture of us being together. Now I realize I look Photoshopped sort of into this picture. But I promise you, I don't have the skill to do that on my own. But here I am, I'm in India, and Nathan is the guy on the stage. And when I go to India, and I've been several times, there's three or four guys I'm always with, and Nathan's one of them. So we're friends. And he's in prison right now because of his faith, just like Paul was. And if I were to go to him and say, Nathan, I want you to fight for joy, I would just tell him this passage. Remember, Nathan, there are still people on the outside who are partners with you in the gospel. Don't lose heart. Even though it feels like you might be stuck or you might be limited, the cause of Christ isn't limited. And the people that you've invested in, they continue to move forward. So you can hold on to that and you can take joy in that. Nathan, your imprisonment could be Christ's assignment. I mean, I realize you might feel like, well, we were just making headway and now I got in sideline, but your being sidelined is an assignment. That's very possible, Nathan. Fourth, I would say rejoice because your life is being poured out for faith. Maybe you won't make it out. I hope you do. But if you don't, your life got poured out for something more valuable, faith. And Nathan, I know warped people want to inflict pain, but don't let it consume you. Be consumed instead with the kingdom of Christ continuing to march forward. Now, I write this mostly Thursday and Friday, and then I get a text message from Benny Matthews, who's the president of Alpha, which is what uh, Nathan works for. And he writes this, Pastor Nathan and others have shared the gospel with over 15 people and every one of them have made a decision for Christ. (laughs) This is not accidental that I'm preaching on this today and that's happening. It is meant to encourage me and it is meant to encourage you that even though you may be in a painful place, it's an assignment. It's not an accident. It's not the sidelines. God needed somebody who uniquely could be qualified to go into a very dark hole and shine the light of Christ. There just aren't that many people who can do it. And Nathan's one, and he got picked. But you're one too. And it may not come out like this, but you may be in a dark place on assignment. You might be in a dark culture on assignment. You might be in a dark workplace on assignment. A dark school, a dark 
roommate situation, a dark family. It's not an accident. They all individually accepted to pray, pray to accept Christ. Over 100 more are hearing about Jesus for the first time. The Lord is working and moving through all these storms for his glory. Thank you for praying for them, Benny. See, Nathan is just like the Apostle Paul. He's not the show. He's the platform. And if God takes his plank and puts him down on a big stage, we were here on a big stage, there were thousands of people there, or he's in a prison cell. He's a platform. He's not the show. Well, I could continue, but I'm going to stop here and just ask us to think with some clarity and assess what are we, what are we investing in right now? Because one day we're all going to have some limitation, some barrier to what we can do that we can do today, we won't be able to do then. And it's going to make a lot of difference of what you've invested your time, your energy, your money, your resources into. There's a small book called The Good and Beautiful Life, and it's written by a guy named James Smith. And he tells a story at the beginning of the book when he was an intern chaplain at a retirement center. And he met this old man who was mostly combined to a wheelchair named Ben Jacobs. He was in room 116. And this is what James Smith says about this. I met this man, and this is what he said. I made my first million at age 25. At 45, I was the richest man in my state. I amassed wealth, and everyone was impressed with me. I had a lot of power in those days. I had 2,000 employees. All of them looked up to me or were afraid of me. Money was really all I cared about. I had three wives and one daughter who's in her 40s, and she refuses to speak to me now. I have nothing but bad memories. I suppose you could say I ruined my life. Because really, I have nothing. Oh, I still have a lot of money. But it doesn't bring me joy. You see what Ben Jacobs did? He, he did make an investment. And it was paying off all it could pay right then, which was nothing. So how are you investing your life? Could be something as small as just praying for people. You just feel like, I'm not the evangelist. Okay, don't be the evangelist. Be the prayer person. Could be as something small as going to the next door, being next door. It could be for some of you going out to a high school or college campus and meeting a Kelly. But how you fight for joy depends a lot on how you make your investments right now.